Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. On today's program, I speak with Fiore Giovanni, motivational speaker, social commentator and author of the about-to-be-released life memoir, Defy Your Destiny. Fiore is a woman who uses her own story of survival to help others. Born in war-torn Eritrea in northeast Africa, Fiore defies a destiny of being a child bride, being a child soldier, and eventually being a refugee to make it in Australia. Here's her story. For me, I remember before I was even the age of 12, looking at many girls in my village and um, feeling, I don't want to be this. I don't want to do this. And whenever I see them getting excited about it, I'm like, I don't understand how you could be excited. I, I remember just shrinking inward. And of course, when it comes to my turn, I'm 12 years old, um, and my parents say this to me, uh, it was an absolute no-no. And uh, especially so because uh, my father raised me uh, and have built up my self-confidence and boost my, you know, you know, build me up and boost my, my self-confidence. Uh, I remember growing up, he used to tell me how smart I was and how strong I was and how one day I was going to lead a country and a nation. And then suddenly I'm 12 years old and he says, well, you have to get married. And, and I said to him, like, how? You told me this and now you're telling me to marry. Anyway, so as you would read in the book, that we had many, many conversations and debates. Um, by the end, um, when I felt no argument of mine was ever winning my parents, I basically said to them, look, if you don't want to cancel it, then I will take my, my own life and the food for that you're preparing for my wedding will be used for my funeral. And that ultimatum scared my parents that they knew I was so determined, so defiant that um, that I could actually do it. And took credit to my parents that even though the they were influenced by the culture, but my you know my safety and my like you know being alive was more greater to them. So they reluctantly decided to cancel my wedding. So I, in my case, I continued to school until I was uh, 14. In Eritrea, we had what we call it uh, student summer work, where in that eight weeks of uh, summer break, for six weeks, if you are 14 and above, you go for six weeks summer work, where they put uh, different schools, different students from different schools together to teach us about work ethic. So we clean up roads, uh, dig holes for plants in order to change Eritrea to green, but also those plants are, I think, a symbol to the people who died to defend the country, which in my opinion are all noble goals. And, um, but in 1999, which is exactly 20 years ago, uh, in my case, when I was 14, um, I went to the summer work, summer work, uh, programs, but the war between Eritrea and Ethiopia was getting heated. And that year, they decided to add a military training and taught us um, how to, you know, f- basically fight, shoot, and kill. And then after, but it was only an eight, a six weeks program, and um, we returned back to our homes, so we didn't go to war or anything like that. And then a few months later, 
um, in almost a year, in May tw- 21st, I think, 2000, that the Eritrean and Ethiopian again even got worse. At some point, we had a war for 24 hours, seven days, nonstop. Ethiopians took over most cities. And as a result, most schools in Eritrea were shut down. And many school, many students were taking different ways, some of them going to the front line. In my case, I went to military hospital to help out with the injured soldiers. Um, once again, I was unable to uh, cope with the blood and everything. So they put me in, um, uh, in the kitchen to help, you know, in the kitchen. A few weeks later, I just decided I wanted to leave. I didn't felt, um, yeah, I didn't want to go to war. I didn't uh, want to die there. So I decided to leave the country. That must have been a very big decision. Absolutely. Absolutely. 14-year-old on her own. Um, so by... May to, to so by 2000 I w- I became 15 years old. Yeah, I was 15. Okay, and how does a 15 year old start the planning, the preparation for leaving? Mm-hmm. Look, first of all, I think when you are in a war torn country, you grow very very fast. You mature very fast. Um, Eritrea was fought for the independence from 61 until 1991. And that time, 1991, I remember I was six years old, but even before the age of six, I remember that like one day, you know, one week we have our city, our village taken by the Ethiopian soldiers and the other week was, and then there was Eritreans. And whenever there were Ethiopians, then many times we have to run, you know, from the village or they would come and they do many, many atrocities. Um, I won't uh, traumatize your audience by telling you some examples, but there is some examples in the book. So before the age of even six, I had seen already many, many atrocities in, in my in my life. And um, even after we got our independence, we had many times, uh, there's always like challenges in the country where you mature very fast. And so it was a matter of for me, and, and also that many people, Eritrean people, had left the country because of the war between 1999 and, and or after. So there's always people leaving. And this was a matter of, like, what is the way to get out that, you know, that the possible way to get out? And what I found that time was for me to travel to Tessene. So Tessene is the uh, Eritrean city in the border of Sudan. I went there and then to look for a guide a paid guide to help me cross to the border, which is what I did. So you got to Sudan. Mm-hmm. Sudan's not exactly safe. No. What's it like for Eritreans, es- Look, especially refugees? Yeah, yeah. Look, first of all, I was there um, in 2000. So it's, again, like very, very almost two decades. So the things changed, in this, especially in those countries, the risks and everything started getting worse and worse. Um, at that time... It was not, it was fine. I was working as a maid. I was learning the language. I was learning computer skills. I even uh, managed a restaurant for a few months before I had to leave to Libya. So it was fine. There's always like, you know, um, stories that you hear how Sudanese have done this to Eritreans or, um, you know, there's always like different stories you hear. And and that's one of the reasons that I decided to leave Sudan. and also, actually, Sudan ha- was, we had some kind of fight in 1994 between there was some problems between Eritrea and Sudan. 
and Sudan actually deported a lot of Eritreans back to Eritrea. Um, and so that was like one of my worry. What if the war starts or problem starts between Sudan and Eritrea, I could get deported to Eritrea. Is that why you chose to leave Sudan? One of the many reasons, yeah. Uh, if there weren't reasons to leave Sudan, would you have happily stayed there forever? I don't know, because like for me, when I left Eritrea, I was just trying to get out of that situation. And in Sudan, I I was working and I, you know, I felt like at least I was not in danger of war. I was I didn't have to go to war. I didn't have to learn, you know. Um, I don't have to learn how to fight and shoot. So in that case, I felt safe enough. So I would have said maybe a little bit, I, I, I don't know. All I know is like, I, you, you know, you step to one place and then whenever there, you feel like there is danger and then you kind of find, you look for a way, okay, what's the next place I can go that could be a little bit safer. And why was Libya that place? Because Libya... Is it's not. not safe, no, <laughs> especially now. Um, you know, um, Giselle, um, Libya was more of a transit place for me. And also it was the only place that I can travel from Libya that didn't require a lot of money or legal papers because I didn't have any. Right. And it was a transit for me to cross the Western country. Uh-huh. Mm. So tell us about the journey from Sudan to Libya and what Libya was like before you left? Mm. So first of all, even to Libya, um, we can I cannot go legally because I didn't have any legal papers. So we have to go through the desert. And the desert was meant to take five days. But being African cars, they never been serviced. Uh, it ended up taking us 24 days in the desert. So we were starving and we were thirsty. We had three people died in the journey because of hunger and thirst, because 24 hours instead of four or five days. Um, but eventually we made it to Libya. And in Libya, I only stayed for six weeks trying to find, you know, but I got, we got together with fellow Eritreans who were in similar journey as myself. Um, we bought a boat and bound to Italy. Yeah. So, and what was the six weeks in Libya like? Um, very difficult. Um, it's much, nothing comparing to what's happening right now. As the slavery selling people for 500, it's just horrifying. There is no words to describe right now. Um, at that time, it was still difficult. I remember on the streets, we cannot walk, for example, with my boyfriend on the street, that he have to walk behind me, just so like we have to be separate on the streets. But that is not something just for the foreigners, that's for everyone. Um, what was only for foreigners was on the bus, for example, you're not supposed to be at the front of the bus. You have to be in the back. If you were at the front, everybody would look at you like you have done something like really, really wrong. Or the Libyans would say to you, what are you doing here at the front? I remember, without knowing this, uh, you know, uh, the first time I was in the front of the bus, a guy spit on my, in my, in, in my feet. And um, you know what, Giselle? I was able to clean that spit from physically, so I was able not to see that. But it never, the scar emotionally that was there, like until right, right now, when I think about it, I cry. Um, it, it's just like it was just a very emotionally scarring attitude. Um, I remember once we went with my boyfriend to a restaurant and this, you know, Libyans was like laughing out loud. You know, you are expecting us to serve you. Um, so it was, was really, really difficult. But um, it got worse and worse 
as the time goes by. In 2000, a few years after I left, actually, my brother uh, lived in Libya for two years and his money was taken many times. He was being bashed, he was being prisoned. Just so many different awful things happened to him um, living there. Um, hence, I he would call me to tell me like this happened and this happened. So I would say to him, leave, leave. There is the money, leave. And unfortunately, he left, but his boat went missing in 2007. And as you would read from the book, that we still haven't heard from him since. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. I'm speaking to author Fiori Giovanni about her new book, Defy Your Destiny. You also took that perilous journey by boat. The, the mainstream conversation about refugees is these boat arrivals. Mm-hmm. And you already mentioned that you and a bunch of other Eritreans saved some money to buy a boat. Mm-hmm. And you also said boat is a very generous description mm-hmm. of the vessel that you travelled in. Yeah. So firstly, tell me about the, the vessel that mm-hmm. you bought, mm-hmm. how many of you there were, and that, um, that trip from Libya to Italy. Um, it was yeah, a boat is like it was like a more of a rubber ducky <laughs> than a than a the word boat uh, because it was a small like more scarf that hold about eighteen people. There was three girls and uh, fifteen guys. Um, what's more, our sailor was Eritrean, and um, we and he was taught how to uh, sail with a sun and a moon in Eritrea, and he's never touched a compass before. And the result was that we left um, Libya and after 16 hours, we were completely and utterly lost in the middle of an ocean until, and we hovered about for over 30 hours and went whenever the wind took, the wind took us until we were finally rescued by the Italian border security and taken to Italian refugee camp. You were lost at sea. For days and days and days, waiting for the Coast Guard or another um, friendly ship or something to come past to rescue you. And eventually that happened for you. Mm -hmm. There are many that that hasn't and they just uh, died in the journey. But it's just like I can take one minute of an opportunity to say one of the biggest misconceptions here is that, you know, refugee have it. Uh, good in the country, why are they living? Why are they risking their lives? They're risking their lives because they are escaping prosecution, um, they death, rape, murder, um, refugee, um, uh, you know, so that if they they have stayed, it is a certain death. So they are trying to uh, take uh, what they consider is to be a pot- that they could potentially survive and make it and and you know make it one day to live your brother took the risk mm. and the he didn't make it he didn't make it but he rang you from yeah. tell tell us about that <laughs> sorry um when he was there, he would just call me all the time and, um, you know, tell me how, how difficult it was to, to live in Libya. And, um, and he felt trapped because, because it was a, it was a, he had a desert behind him and an ocean in front of him. And he was living hell, basically. 
literally in in Libya being bashed and imprisoned and robbed by those you know Libyans um and um the only way that I that we saw was like uh, you know that you have to leave like you there you know because initially before he came to Libya I said to him it was awful I knew how difficult it was I said to him we'll find another way from Sudan so stay there don't come to Libya but he knew that I did not have a lot of money and um he didn't have a lot of legal papers and especially I didn't have a lot of money and so he told the same thing that I thought this you know this is the cheapest way out of this and so he took that way um and and but he found himself being trapped and then when he finally you know left took the step and called him from the middle of the ocean told me fury like our there is a there is an our engine is broken there is a water coming in send us help and I called as many people I can think of, I can call like the Italian, the Italian police or the Italian border security, the UN, uh, the humanitarian organizations, all sorts of people, people who were with him called all people. And you know what, what's also funny, uh, Giselle, that time there were actually um, people, Italian, the Italian border security or um, that they took him, they took them a picture and they post the picture of them online as a news. There was 54 people trying to cross from this and this, but they did nothing to help them. After the news become like a sensation where everybody was calling everybody and they uh, was asked by, and they was asked why didn't they save them? And then they said, ah, oh, there was wind, there was this, but you can see in the picture, it was very clear. They were so relaxed because um, they thought they was going to be rescued. And you know what? This is so familiar to me because in the beginning, when we were trying to be rescued, we were asking and hovering above the water. I remember them coming, taking as a million pictures to before they were actually able to rescue us. In fact, they didn't just voluntarily rescue us. We They took picture of us, they took video of us just to make sure we weren't an enemy, we weren't holding in arms. And then after that, they just left us. They just left us. And um, because they had a boat, they both got slower than the Moriscoff. Ours was fast. And we saved the engine to go once we see a boat. So we didn't use the engine. And we had the engine. We put the engine on. And then we kept blocking them in the front. Said, like, help us. Please take us. And they say, no, go away. And um, we just would not let them go. We just kept blocking them. And then at the end, one of the guys from us told the, told the Italians, said to them, like, listen, how about you take only three girls? And then they say, only three girls. Yes, only the three girls. And they say, like, okay, we'll take only the three girls. They stopped to take only the three girls, and then they was going to leave all the 15 guys in there, in the middle of the ocean, right? And then as soon as we stopped, one of the guys said, I'm going to help you. He got up and get in the boat like pretending that he was going to help him. He held his hand and he told everyone, come on, get into the boat. And then they start climbing to the boat. And um, and then the, the the Italian security board, they kind of, by that point, they kind of didn't fight as hard and, and they just took mercy on us, I guess. And then they just let us be and they gave us food and drinks. And And I believe that's what happened to my brother, that they saw them, they just let them go. As refugees, we, you know, we have come all the long way and here we have an opportunity to build something, to start fresh 
Um, we need to focus on the good things, on the opportunities we have. Um, I most of my you know my my closest friends are white Caucasian. I'm my life partner, father of my son is uh, you know Caucasian, and my business partners are Caucasians. And I had we had fights and disagreements about different issues. Never do I feel like a lot of you know our disagreement comes from me being black. And I'm not saying that you know racism does not exist. It does. But not everybody is a, a racism, and we need to stop. You know, in the we need to get out of this victimhood of mentality and thinking about all the people who are putting that who who are putting us down, or are not being educated or ignorant. We need to think. We need to think and connect with people who are lifting us up, people who are you know wanting us to succeed. Um, we need to be the change we wanted to see. We need to be the leaders we wanted to be le led by. Um, we need to take responsibility for our life and for what we want it to be. Um, we need to learn the language. We need to learn. We need to integrate, to integrate with the culture. There is no question of there is a, there is a mistreatment when it comes to, you know, refugees. Um, and I think one of the biggest, uh, uh, you know, the, the biggest problems with this refugee issue is that refugee is one of the, in my opinion, one of the most underrepresented uh, subject by refugees. It's often the voices are often coming from our politicians and journalists, which often have their own uh, agendas. There is no many refugees coming out telling the story of what is it like to be a refugee um, because of the culture and language barriers. And so if we wanted to make, yes, there are problems, so let's focus on the issue. So let's learn the language. Let's integrate. Let's educate people who we are and talk about our similarities and ways we can change this. As sitting and complaining is not going to fix, you know, a situation, taking responsibility and taking the right steps. Um, I understand the whole issue of refugee uh, could be quite daunting and paralyzing, but let's not focus the big picture. Let's focus on the first step that's offered in front of us. What can we do right now from where we are to resolve this issue? And, um, and I also, you know, wanted to say to local Australians that, you know, one of the biggest criticism of refugees has been that, you know, refugees don't integrate to the local country. But, um, and yet the, you know, the way to create integration is by you welcoming them. Integration is two-way street that we as locals, we need to um, not sit and, you know, expect refugees, uh, meet them with expectations of them, you know, being a certain way or acting a certain way. Um, but like, you know, meet them with kindness and, and, and understand where they're coming from. Refugees are coming with so many traumas, with so many worries of leaving people that they have left behind, uh, overwhelmed by all the things that they have to learn in their new country. I have this good friend, um, Giselle, his name is uh, Danny, not racist, of course, a good friend of mine. And I remember uh, in one of our recent conversation, he said to me, Fior, you know, I'm not racist or anything like that. But in my Airbnb, he, Airbnb is his place. And he says, um, I prefer to have, you know, Australians than, than other countries because I could easily banter with them. Whereas I feel like a lot of, you know, refugees or other people's country don't get my humor. And um, I was thinking about that. Um, you know, how, un, you know, how unfair is that? 
for refugees to be expected to be funny and to be, you know, to act a certain way in order for them to be welcomed and to be accepted, you know. Um, how would we feel that we, we, if we have gone through all the traumas those people have gone through and we went to London, a country, but they are saying to us, well, you're not being funny, you're not getting my joke, therefore, you know, I, I'd rather not have you. When we say that, we are effectively saying, because you're not funny enough, that you effectively not good enough for me to talk to you. You know, we need, so we need to kind of, we need to hold ourselves in higher standard and say, you know, and stop checking other people and first check ourselves. What am I doing to welcome those people? What am I doing them to make them feel comfortable so they can talk to me, so I can understand them, so I can befriend them? I think there is a lot of work to be done from both sides. We need to stop complaining. And and also that we need to stop listening to, to our politicians. We need to, you know, we need to stop believing everything that we've been told. One of the uh, misconceptions about refugee is that, you know, refugees are like sponge, they're draining countries' economy. Where you, if you see the facts and check from, you know, the from the right resources, you would know that refugees are actually a beneficial to a country's economy. So there are many, many things that you talked about in the book that we don't have time to cover on the show, but uh, things like your experience of domestic violence here in Australia, um, some of the details of um, how you built a life in um, Belgium and then uh, eventually coming to Australia. So so I would really encourage listeners to go out, find the book, read the book um, and find the message of the book. Um, so Fiori, thank you so much for your time on the show today. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That was Fiori Giovanni, author of a personal memoir called Defy Your Destiny. The book is available online for pre-order, but is being released on February 28. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.